This is the Planning Podcast from Number 5 Chambers and I'm Richard Kimblin. With me today are Adette Chalaby and Carl Copestake. Adette is a Planning and Environmental Barrister at Number 5 Chambers, being supervised in her pupillage with Nina Pindam. Carl Copestake is a Planning Consultant and Senior Planner at Knights LLP. Why are they gathered together today? There is a case which has proceeded very quickly through both the High Court and Court of Appeal in the name of Matthew Richards, a young boy who is adversely affected, as far as his health is concerned, by the hydrogen sulphide emissions from a landfill site in Staffordshire near Newcastle under Lyme at a place called Silverdale. Adette is going to take us through the judgments in the High Court and Court of Appeal and the consequences so far as the relationship between regulators and the courts is concerned in human rights cases. And Carl is going to take us on a journey back to September 2016 and the years preceding when an appeal was decided in respect of a development outline proposal for 138 dwellings at a site close by to Wally's landfill where the reason for refusal was concerned with odour. What's the relationship between planning and pollution control? So those are the topics. Let's hear what our guests have to say. So I'm here with Adette and Carl. Adette, good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Richard. And Carl, how are you? Good afternoon, Richard. I'm well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, really good, really good. Looking forward to doing this. Let's just identify what you've both been doing in preparation for helping people through this case. Adette, which documents have you been looking at? I've been mainly looking at the Court of Appeal decision in Richards and the Environment Agency, which is dated the 17th of January this year, and also the High Court decision. But that's what I've been focusing on. Okay. And Carl, I think you've got a rather earlier document to help us with. I I do, Richard, yes. I've been revisiting the appeal decision appeal decision by Inspector John Woltock into an outline application which was refused back in 2015 and that was an outline application for 138 dwellings in close proximity to Wally's Quarry. So we've got the case of Matthew Richards which is concerned with Wally's Quarry, Silverdale and Carl your appeal decision is also concerned with the same location, Silverdale. Indeed, yes. The, the, appeal, the appeal site is located uh, at the edge of Silverdale, yes. Right. Well, I think it will become clear later why these two things uh, have some links and interactions. But first of all, let's, let's get stuck into the facts so far as the case in the High Court and the Court of Appeal are concerned. Adette, can you kick us off uh, with what the essential points are uh, which Matthew Richards was litigating? Sure. So so Matthew Richards is a five and a half year old boy and he lives in Silverdale, just a few hundred metres from the Wally's Quarry landfill. And that landfill site has been operating under a permit issued by the Environment Agency for a number of years. And it's also the subject of a planning commission. And we find in the judgment that since about late 2020, there's been a serious increase of complaints made about hydrogen sulphide gas emissions from the landfill site. And that's meant to be really odorous, really affecting people's day-to-day quality of life, but also actually causing some quite serious health problems 
to, to the community, but in particular to Matthew, who was born prematurely and who has always had lung problems, problems breathing. And the evidence of his doctors in the high court was that they were concerned the emissions from that landfill, the hydrogen sulfide, was actually preventing his recovery, would lead to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and reduce his life expectancy. So some quite serious problems being caused by that landfill site and increasing seriously from 2020. And Matthew brought a claim in the High Court alleging that there'd been a breach of his rights under the European Convention of Human Rights. In particular, his Article 2 rights, so that's right to life, and Article 8, so his right to private and family life. I think it came on quite quickly before the High Court, didn't it? Yes. And resulted in a very lengthy judgment. Yeah, they wanted interim relief, but the court thought it would be better to just crack on with things as quickly as possible. And um, so it did that instead. It was a lengthy judgment full of detail about the, sort of the science, the technical information put before it, the number of experts. But what the court found was the slightly unusual conclusion was that it didn't actually find a breach of his Article 8 or Article 2 rights. But what it did do was make a declaration that the Environment Agency had to, within a particular time scale, comply with a number of recommendations given to it by Public Health England. So reach particular outcomes relating to the pollution levels. And it said that was absolutely necessary for the Environment Agency to, to act lawfully going forwards. So that's a declaration. That's a statement by the court, not actually providing a remedy. That's what a declaration is. It's not saying that a decision has been quashed. But it was a, a rather unusual declaration, which seemed to tell the Environment Agency what it had to do and by when. That's right. And I think the Court of Appeal noted that it wasn't really a classic advisory declaration setting out the position, the legal position. It was more of a mandatory order requiring the Environment Agency to take certain steps by certain particular times. And that was quite unusual. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, the Environment Agency appealed it. So. Ground of appeal, look, you can't tell us to do things when we haven't been in breach. No breach, surely there's no remedy. Did the Environment Agency complain on any other grounds? So it, it had two main grounds of appeal. And the first was sort of the judge erred in making the declaration of this kind in general, because that's simply not an area, the steps which the expert regulator needs to take not an area for the court to be involved in at all. And then the second ground of appeal was that on the basis that there was no finding of any breach, any unlawful act, the Human Rights Act didn't allow the court to grant relief at all because there'd been no breach. So they're sort of interconnected grounds of appeal, but that's what they, they appealed on the basis of. And there was actually a cross, cross appeal by Matthew Richards, who said that the judge essentially should have found a breach of Article 2 or Article 8. What, what did the Environment Agency say about what it had been doing about the substance of the complaints? Was it the agency's case that nothing had been done, but nevertheless they weren't in breach? Or were they saying we'd done what was proportionate in the circumstances? Very much the latter, Richard. Since the issue had come before them, they were very much aware of the issue and were treating it seriously. And what they said was that they'd taken a number of actions since 2020 so trying to improve the, the capping and containment of the gas, trying to improve the, get the operator to improve the extraction infrastructure, 
increased monitoring to get better data, requiring a new plan, a new management and risk assessment plan. And it also crucially took advice from Public Health England, who, who made some, some strong recommendations. And what the Environment Agency said was that it was in the process of looking at those recommendations and potentially implementing them. Okay. Well, I think that might be a good place just to firstly understand what the Court of Appeal did, what was the outcome, and then switch to Carl, and we'll see what was going on a few years earlier and how the planning inspectorate dealt with the interaction between the planning system and what the Environment Agency was doing. So let, let us know what the court said overall. What, what happened to Mr Justice Fordham's judgment? Well, essentially, the court sided with the Environment Agency on almost the whole, the whole scope of its argument. So it, it started with dealing with the issue of the respective roles of the court and the regulator. Uh, and it essentially said that what Mr Justice Fordham had done was prescribe precise outcomes that the Environment Agency had to achieve and a timescale for that. But, but those choice of means of how to achieve good levels of pollution is an area where there's a lot of latitude for an expert regulator like the EA and a big margin of appreciation for the state. And that's clear from the whole lot of European Court of Human Rights case law that was before the court. And then it also found, so that was the first issue. The second issue was about the breach of Article 2 and Article 8. And it found that the court below definitely hadn't found a breach and on that basis, it was inappropriate for it to grant relief in the form of a declaration because nothing unlawful had happened. So that was inappropriate. It then turned to the cross appeal, whether it should have found a breach of Article 2 or Article 8. And essentially, for similar reasons to the first issue, so focusing on the latitude of the state, the margin of appreciation, what was really interesting here was that it did find that those articles, the right to life, the right to family life, were engaged, found there was genuinely a real and immediate risk to Matthew's life, that his life expectancy would be reduced, and that there had been an impact on his community's day-to-day -day life, his private and family life, that reached a serious level of severity. So it found those things, but at the same time, it didn't find a breach because what it found was that the Environment Agency had taken the reasonable steps to remedy the problem through all those actions we talked about a minute ago. So, so it, it, it found that there was something serious going on, but it didn't find that the Environment Agency was actually to be found liable in the end. That's fantastic, Adette, because that brings us right uh, to Carl's involvement, because Carl, you... You were involved in, as frankly, so was I, uh, you were involved in an appeal decision which you just outlined for us, which had, I think, that at its heart, rather similar topics. Do you want to help us with that? Yes, indeed, indeed Richard. The, the appeal decision is actually five and a half years ago now, going back to 2016. And I gave evidence that it's an appeal which was ultimately allowed. It was an outline application for 138 dwellings which would be sited just 150 metres to the south of the active, active infilling area for, for Wally's Quarry. And the, the planning application had been refused by the council, and the, the main issue was whether the occupiers of this proposed development would be likely to experience unacceptable living conditions because of the odour emissions which were arising from Wally's Quarry. So um, in addition to myself, we, we had an expert witness who gave odour evidence and the inspector's conclusions were that the quarry itself 
was the subject of an environmental permit uh, odour management plan. And he concluded that there were extant dwellings which were closer to Wallace Quarry than our proposed dwellings. And that the odour management plan within it had the ability to deal with odour emissions. So, so the context for the appeal decision was very important. There were simply dwellings sited closer to Wallace Quarry than our proposed dwellings. And the inspector concluded that if odour did arise, that the odour management plan would kick in, identify it and deal with the problem. And therefore, the living conditions of those extant residents were safeguarded. Um, he also concluded that the framework provides that it should be assumed that the pollution control regime will operate effectively. And on that basis, that we could rely on the permanent odour management plan. And ergo, the proposed development would not be adversely affected um, if the existing residents were not affected. Occupiers would, of the proposed development would not have an unacceptable quality of life. And he went on to find no conflict with the framework. So central to that, Carl, is is the relationship between the planning and pollution control regimes and, Indeed. and the assumption or presumption yes. that the pollution control regime environmental permit will be effective. It should be effective, operate effectively, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and, he was, and the inspector was very explicit on, on that basis. This is an appeal decision in 2016, yep. reference to some complaints made in 2013-14, but it, it does seem that the complete the complaints were of a wholly different order by the time the matter got to the high court is that your reading of it yes i think by the time the matter went to the high court there were far more complaints and far more continual complaints too perhaps the complaints previously were more periodic um, and the odors were perhaps more periodic in terms of the spikes it certainly didn't have perhaps the the coverage, the press coverage that it now does. But we do get to an interesting point, don't we? I mean, Adette might want to say something about this. We get to a point where she's just explained the relationship between the courts and the regulator. Carl, you've picked up the relationship between the planning system and the regulation of the landfill site. One's left with the question, to, to, to whom should, should Matthew, via his parents, complain? I do think that's that's a really interesting question that arises out of all of this. I mean, what we see in these these two cases is in the planning case, the inspector quite properly, according to what I think is now paragraph 188 of the new MPPF, quite properly saying that he needs to assume that that regulatory regime, the EA, will be effective and he needs to make his planning decision on that basis, on that assumption. So the inspector and, and the planning inspectorate in general not getting involved in the regulatory regime and sort of stepping back from it. But we also see a, a sort of similar, although from a different angle, approach by the Court of Appeal, who is really at pains to emphasise its own limited role in this sphere of um, regulating dangerous industrial activities uh, and really emphasising the latitude and margin of appreciation on the part of public authorities with licensing and supervisory functions. So I think that is really interesting. In, in both circumstances, it's sort of assumed at the heart of this whole system that the EA will operate effectively and that what it does will work. And the question does arise, as you say, well, who, who's regulating that? Who's regulating the regulator? And I guess the, the answer is government. But is it doing so effectively and can it do it so effectively? I suppose in a way we come back to Mr Justice Fordham's declaration. His declaration was focused on 
the environment agency achieving certain outcomes. That's really what he was, you need to do this by this time. Whereas in fact, the, the environment agency's uh, approach is to require the operator to do certain things. And that's the extent of their involvement. They require checking of gypsum board, etc., which might give rise to a source of sulfates, which might be reduced by the bacteria to give rise to hydrogen sulfide gas in the anaerobic conditions in the landfill. They're controlling the waste management operation, but they're not themselves subject to a requirement to meet a particular emission standard for hydrogen sulfide. And, and that's the difference between what the High Court was trying to fix the Environment Agency with and what the agency actually does. Yes. I guess the, the agency would say that looking at its functions, I mean, it could suspend the permit or revoke the permit, but it didn't actually find that either of those would have any positive effect because the gas was already there and it needed to be contained or extracted. So th there's a limit to, to what it could actually do, given that its its power is relating to the permit um, and not to going on site and doing operations. And what's happening on site, Carl? Is it scheme being built out? It is. It is, Richard, yes, uh, that the scheme has, has started. It's well underway and in, indeed some of the new dwellings are now occupied. Okay. Well, there's there's an interesting interaction between, in human rights terms, a very, very important case. And of course, remembering that at the heart of it is a young individual that's got a serious condition. And on the other hand, an illustration of the way in which these various parts of the regulatory framework fit together or perhaps some people might say don't. I've, I found that to be enlightening and I'm very grateful that you enlightened me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. <laughs> Have a great rest of your day and, and as I say, listeners will be very, very uh, grateful to you for, for that update uh, and for Carl, your insight bringing out from your archives um, what was going on in 2016, which has suddenly become of particular interest. Thank you very much, Carl. You're welcome, Richard. Bye now. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was the planning podcast from Number 5 Chambers. Thank you for listening. Do tune in next time. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>